Hi everyone, I'm Tara Mont, and you're listening to the Trust and Thrive with Tara Mont podcast, where you can find a new episode released every Thrive Thursday. I am a current clinical psychology graduate student, passionate about all things to do with mental health, relationships, healing, self-reflection, and other topics that influence us in our everyday lives. I created this podcast to hopefully inspire others to live their most authentic life and to share insightful and honest conversations with everyday individuals and informed professionals. Although the show is not a replacement for therapy, I hope the conversations had can inspire you to look within, to practice self-compassion, to gain more awareness, and to trust the process of your unique journey. If you resonate with the message of Trust and Thrive, make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. You can also stay connected by following me on Instagram at Trust and Thrive. Thank you for being here. Now let's get right into this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Trust and Thrive. I'm your host, Tara Mont, and I'm really excited to share this week's episode on a topic I resonate with that I'm sure many people will. And the topic is on OCD and intrusive thoughts, relationship OCD. So this week's guest is Aliza Shapiro. Aliza is a licensed psychotherapist and the founder of Therapy in the City, PLLC. In her clinical work, Aliza helps adolescents Young adults and adults overcome a wide array of mental health challenges, including depression, anxiety, OCD, and related disorders. Aliza is also a passionate advocate for mental health awareness and uses her social media page, therapist underscore in underscore NYC, to break stigmas, foster meaningful discussion, and build a sense of community for those looking to find meaning, joy, and personal growth in all contexts of life. And so before we get into this episode, I want to remind you all, as always, that this show is not a replacement for therapy. It is not a place to diagnose yourself. Any therapist on the show is not your therapist. And so it's important to know that each situation is so different. Even the topics we have, while there may be certain answers given about certain examples, I hope you remember that each situation is so unique. There's no one answer or right way to approach any situation whether it's mental health related or not. So I hope the show can inspire conversation, encourage you to reflect and do the work outside of the show as well, and to explore these thoughts with a professional in your life as well. And so as someone who lives with OCD, I really, really appreciate everything that Aliza brought up and mentioned. It's incredibly validating to hear because like Aliza mentions in this episode, living with OCD can be extremely lonely and and bring up just a lot of feelings to do with shame, confusion, and so many more feelings. And so whether or not you live with OCD, you know someone who does, or you just want to learn more about intrusive thoughts in relationships and want to learn how to best support a loved one, then this episode is for you. So once again, you can follow Aliza on Instagram at therapist underscore in underscore NYC. And you can also find me on TikTok and Instagram at Trust and Thrive. And if you want to support the show, you can leave a rating and review on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts. So thank you in advance for doing so. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being open to hearing these conversations and really learning more about yourself, about others, and being open to growth. And that being said, let's get right into the conversation with Aliza. Aliza. 
Hi, Aliza. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I love your posts. I love everything you're doing on Instagram. So thank you for being here. How are you doing? Tara, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the kind words. It always makes me very happy when people resonate with the the content that I put out. Of course. Thank you so much for being here. And so to start off, for anyone who hasn't seen your page or they're maybe not aware of what you do with your work, can you maybe share a little bit more about your background, what you do, what inspired you to get into this field? Absolutely. I'd love to. So I'm a therapist and I have a practice in New York, New Jersey, and Florida. And I specialize in working with adults and young adults some teens as well, um, with anxiety and related disorders. So what that means is I specialize in working with people with either generalized anxiety, social anxiety, panic disorder, agoraphobia, specific phobias, but most of all with um, people with OCD. That's obsessive compulsive disorder. And I know there are a lot of preconceived notions about OCD and what what the definition actually is. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that today, Um, but that's that's primarily who I work with and what I do. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. And if you don't mind sharing with us, is there anything specific that inspired you to get into that field? Did you know anyone personally or yourself who was struggling with this? And what maybe was the moment for you that you thought, okay, I really want to work with this specific demographic? That's such a good question. I started, I got into the therapy field years before I started specializing in anxiety. Um, And I had I would say my own journey was just understanding my mental health. When I was a kid, I always had a lot of emotions. I remember my mom, like when I was so little one time saying to me, Lisa, you're so sensitive. And I, yeah. I took that as like such an insult. I'm like, mom, that's so mean. She's like, no, Lisa, it's a nice thing. It means that you like Aww. can pick up on other people's feelings. It's really, it's really cool. And I remember having that moment and being like, Oh, that is kind of how I operate in the world. And I definitely have always felt connected to psychology and the world of mental health in general. So anyway, I had a long, long journey and then became a therapist. But in terms of um, anxiety, I started working my first job fresh out of grad school um, at a place called the Center for Anxiety. So I was trained by the founder there. His name is Dr. David Rossman. He is a Harvard professor and he specializes in treating anxiety and OCD. And he uses a very specific protocol to treat it called exposure and response prevention therapy. Um, and he trained me in terms of treating anxiety and OCD with this modality. And once I started the work, it became like one of the most inspiring methods um, of treatment because I saw such immense change in a very short amount of time. And it's the kind of therapy that actually really like encourages people to push their boundaries both in their thoughts and in their behaviors. Um, And it becomes this extremely empowering process when you learn to start facing your fears and talking back to the voice of OCD, et cetera. So it became something that I felt super connected to. And then since I started my career, I've just become more and more entrenched in the work of, of treating OCD. And I love it. That's incredible. And also very comforting as someone in grad school. I think I'm like, oh, what do you have? Like, what demographic do I want to work with? And so the fact that you had that experience and then you figured that out, that's amazing. And I also appreciate you bringing up the whole idea of being sensitive. I think that's so common. And I love that your mom 
reminded you that that's a strength because so many people are taught to like, you know, hide your feelings or you're so sensitive. That's a weakness or something to be ashamed of. So I think that's just a beautiful reminder to embrace that. And so when we talk about OCD, are there any misconceptions you hear often? Because I know just from someone who's seen TV and movies and all of that, we hear, you know, you're so clean, you must have OCD. And yes, that can be a part of OCD, but it's not the only type of OCD or just people like who are so organized may make comments like, oh, it's my OCD or I need to be color coded. Can you maybe share some misconceptions you hear often and ones that you think can be harmful? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think probably the biggest one that at this point, even like I'm still bothered by it so much, even though I see it all the time is when people kind of walk around the streets and throw out the term OCD as some sort of like adjective to be proud of like, oh, you're so OCD, right? Or something like that. And it's like, well, well, no, OCD is a, is a diagnosis. It's a disorder that people who have it by definition are, are bothered by recurrent, intrusive, distressing thoughts that they can't shake. And I think that in, you know, in, in the world of media and TV and just kind of being a little bit laissez-faire about mental health in general, we talk about this word as if, as if it's something like kind of trendy or or even like kind of cool to have. Like, I wish I had more OCD. I wish I was cleaner. And the people who actually struggle with this, it's truly heartbreaking because their experience of dealing with OCD day in and day out, it's really a disorder that never sleeps. They, they're like, you have no idea what my world is like. I would give anything to not have this disorder. So I think that that's probably the biggest one where people just kind of throw out this word and truly don't really know what it means. And to answer the other part of that question, sometimes people's OCD has absolutely nothing to do with health or with cleanliness or with order. There's so many different subtypes, which we could talk more about as well, but OCD takes on a ton of different forms, a ton of different, wears a ton of different costumes and really has, you know, people can be struggling with it and nobody in the outside world would know. Definitely. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And so for someone who is now listening and thinking, okay, well, what does it mean then? What is OCD? Um, if they literally don't know what an intrusive thought is, or they don't know what a compulsion is, can you maybe define it a bit? Absolutely. And if I use anything, any language that's too clinical, just <laughs> remind me. And I, uh, that's yeah. all good. So OCD defined is when a person struggles with thoughts that kind of keep coming up in their brain, that they really can't get rid of on their own or they really want to get rid of on their own that. And then this is like the language in the, in the diagnostic assessment, intrusive, distressing, repeated, right. Thoughts that kind of keep coming back over and over and over again, that don't necessarily have to do with everyday living. It might, but not necessarily. For example, it's not necessarily the thought, Oh, I'm just going to be late for school. I'm going to be late for this class. It might be a thought. If I take this train, it's for sure going to crash. Or if I touch this doorknob, I'm for sure going to get a disease and give it to my family. So it could be related to everyday living, but usually it's not. And usually the nature of the thoughts are very distressing, really thoughts that that the individuals who struggle with them want to get rid of, which brings us to the next part, which is the compulsion piece. Compulsions aren't separate from obsessions. Very typically, we engage or people who struggle with OCD engage in compulsions, which are repeated behaviors that feel really hard to control to actually get rid of the distress that comes along with the thought. So for example, somebody has fear of, you know, contracting a disease. So they have a thought, uh Oh, what if I touch this doorknob and get sick, catch a germ. 
So the compulsion related to that would be, let me wash my hands for 30 seconds or 60 seconds or three minutes so that I kind of feel like I'm in control over that fear and the fear starts to go down. So it's the, it's the thoughts and the fears that really feel very triggering. And then the compulsion or the behavior that's kind of paired with the thought so that the distress related to that thought goes away. I appreciate you mentioning that way because that's so such a simple way to explain it, but that's the right way to explain it. And so I appreciate it. And so for someone who may be living with OCD and they have these intrusive thoughts and like you said, the outside from the outside world, it can seem like, oh, like, what are you thinking? That's so ridiculous. Or obviously this is not going to happen. How often do you see them feeling maybe obviously every situation is different, but maybe feeling very invalidated and ashamed and having these feelings of loneliness in that. Because if they're having those thoughts and other people don't understand, that can obviously leave anyone feeling very alone. So is that something you see a lot in your work? I think you said those words like so beautifully and so spot on. Shame, loneliness. I think these are the two emotions that are probably most associated in a secondary way to the feelings and the experience of OCD. A lot of the people that I work with, they kind of go through this period in the beginning of of actually speaking about their OCD, where they share with me that they kind of feel like it's their fault. Because they say, you know, well, it's it's a thought or it's a feeling I should be able to control it. It's so absurd. I know in my rational mind, you know, that, you know, tapping three times on my table before, before dinner, that's not going to protect my family, but in the moment it feels like I have to, and, and I don't know what's wrong with me. Right. And then whenever that sentence starts coming up in somebody's mind, I don't know what's wrong with me. There's so much shame attached to it. And, it, and that kind of breaks my heart as a therapist. Cause I'm like, you didn't choose this. If you had a choice your way, you would say, no, I wish I wouldn't. I wish I didn't have to deal with this. I wish I didn't have this struggle. So I think the shame comes in when people start to really believe like this is my fault or this is something I've chosen or I can just willpower my way out of it. And that's not really how it works. And then, in, you know, kind of like the layer beneath that or the, the deeper level is I feel so alone in this because nobody understands it. Or maybe I finally opened up to one best friend, right? And they say, that's crazy. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, thoughts and feelings confirmed. I'm crazy. I'm alone in this, right? Nobody understands. It's so hard to get through it. And that loneliness can actually make the OCD so much worse. I have a couple people that I've worked with in the past as well, who have shared with me that they didn't tell anybody about their inner world related to OCD for five, six, seven to 10 plus years of their life which is wild because you're not meant to go through a struggle like this alone. We're not meant to go through any struggle alone, let alone struggles with mental health, but certainly one that's so internal. And they were like, this is a crazy experience to finally share it with somebody and to know that I'm not the only one going through it. For sure. That totally makes sense. And I think that really relates to how often we're seeing these messages of like control your thoughts or you're more, you're stronger than your thoughts. And that can be so invalidating for someone who has these intrusive thoughts and they're thinking, well, I must just be weak or something must be wrong with me or someone else tells them to just snap out of it. So how do you think someone can support a loved one with OCD without maybe like saying that the thought is true? So how can they support them with validate them as a person without validating that that's a true thought, for example, that makes sense. Amazing question. We call this validating, um, validating the feeling, right? So we validate the feeling instead of validating the what. So 
I can validate that you're having this experience. It must be so hard, right? Those thoughts in your head, they, they sound like they're really, 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 really loud today. It must be a really hard experience. How can I support you? Right. That's kind of the language that I would encourage people to use. And instead of saying like either, well, you know that that's never going to happen or the flip side, which is, okay, well, if your thoughts are telling you don't leave the house today, let's just stay home. We call that accommodating. Right. And that doesn't really help people in the long run either. You can validate the emotion without validating what it is that the emotion is telling them to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's so interesting. And it makes a lot of sense because it's incredibly validating without kind of feeding into the OCD. And so I think that really connects well to relationship OCD because we hear about relationship anxiety or normal fears and thoughts that we have in relationships. It can bring up a lot for anyone. But what can relationship OCD look like, for example? Because I think when you're in a relationship, especially it's so easy to get caught up with the feelings and confuse thoughts and feelings like, oh, well, it must be true that they don't love me or it must be true that they're cheating or doing this. Can you maybe give some examples of relationship OCD and how what someone can maybe recognize? Obviously, this is no one diagnosed themselves, but just some examples. Yeah. And I like that you said nobody diagnosed themselves because relationship OCD can look a lot like other things too. For some people, Trauma can impact, you know, feeling uncertain in a relationship. Attachment disorders can be a big impact as well. So there are a lot of other things that kind of play into relationships that may look like relationship OCD. So it's important to talk to um, a professional to make sure that what you're experiencing is. Yes. But this is not therapy. This is not a place for anyone to diagnose themselves, but hopefully to spark conversation and curiosity. So I appreciate you mentioning that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 100%. So whenever it comes to trying to understand whether or not what you're what you're feeling um, is within the context of anxiety or specifically OCD, the key things to look out for are kind of like recurrent patterns in a situation and then behaviors to try to get yourself through. So what, what that looks like in relationship OCD is really kind of like persistent thoughts or doubts about these are just some examples you know, maybe they don't love me enough. Maybe I don't love them enough. Maybe I'm still attracted to other people. Maybe they're not the one. Maybe I'm actually, you know, bisexual, or maybe I'm gay. There are a lot of thoughts that this has kind of come come up in, right? You mentioned some important ones earlier too. Maybe they're cheating on me. Maybe they're going to dump me tomorrow. And so when those thoughts kind of like repeatedly come in over and over, and then they're paired with, okay, so what am I going to do about it, right? That can kind of lead into the to the compulsion piece. So what that looks like is checking behaviors, seeking reassurance, right? So maybe like I have a strong urge to check her phone or check his phone, or I need to get reassurance every single night. Do you still love me? Do you still love me? Or I need to ask myself, okay, I'm walking down the street. Am I more attracted to that person than I am to him, right? So kind of engaging in those checking behaviors over and over again can be a sign that it is relationship OCD. And I, I also tell people this, oftentimes emotions don't really discriminate. So if you have persistent anxiety or OCD in other realms of your life and it's showing up here, then it kind of makes sense, right? Relationships are important to us. They're big deals. And very often, not always, but very often when something is the most important to us, we'll have a stronger emotional reaction to it, sometimes in the form of of stress or anxiety or even OCD itself. So that's typically what it what it can look like. 
Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And I know that can seem very confusing for some people too, because of course, relationships bring up so many emotions and sometimes it may be like you said, trauma or insecurity or whatever it may be. And if someone, for example, knows that they have been diagnosed with OCD and that it is affecting their relationships, how can, what's a way you think they can approach their partner, their partners, their friends, and let them know about this so that they can best support them? What's a way to have that conversation, in your opinion? That's a great question. So I think that transparency and communication and vulnerability is always key, right? In any relationship, that's how we get deeper. That's how we get closer to each other. So it's important to tell your partner that this is what you're going through. And it's also important to tell your partner that you recognize and that you kind of take responsibility for the healing part of this work. And certainly everything in a relationship turns into a joint effort because if you support me, I'm going to feel, you know, more motivated to support myself. But at the end of the day, these are my emotions that I need to take accountability for. So I always encourage people who think they're struggling with this to get treatment and to get help because there really is a beautiful way of working through relationship OCD that helps somebody learn how to embrace the uncertainty that comes along with it, to not lean on their partner too heavily, to, to kind of give them that reassurance to the point where it might even like erode their relationship and to take, to take, you know, comfort and even strength in the fact that we can learn how to live in uncertainty instead of trying to control it and listening to that voice of OCD all the time. That's so well said, because I think there's a, an important point you made that you have to take responsibility for it, even though it's happening and someone can support you. Like, for example, if you tell your partner and then you let them know, like, well, you need to validate me. Then every time I have this thought, then that doesn't help either or validate the thought, for example, and confirm that it's true. So I think that's a really great point. And in general, for anything, I think self-awareness is so essential. So for example, say you grew up with a superstitious family or a religious family or family members who do things all the time, like oh, well, they pray this many times a day or they knock this many times. My grandma used to do this because it was good luck. I think traditions and can sometimes be mixed in with these compulsions. How can one differentiate in the two? So whether or not it's something that they're just trying to pass down or if it's something that they feel like might be turning into OCD. That's actually one of the subtypes that I specialize in treating, um, religious OCD, which is actually called scrupulosity. It's interesting. It's a very specific um, subtype of OCD, but a lot of people are struggling with it without even realizing. And one of the key elements to look for is once I engage in this behavior, does the thought and the feeling and kind of the whole story just go away, right? I knock and then I move on, right? If, if that's like a superstition that your grandma did, um, or I pray and then I get on with my day, or does it become the kind of thing that if I don't do it exactly right, or if I miss it one day, are there really, really scary thoughts that come along with it? I'll be punished. Something bad will happen. My whole day is going to be ruined. I'm unworthy. I am imperfect, right? If those thoughts are attached to it, very often it, it might actually be coming from an anxious place instead of a place of just, hey, these are this is my religion. This is what I want to ascribe to. And the, the goal of therapy in that case would be to work through the anxiety of it and the distress around it. And to make sure that if you choose to do these, you know, religious endeavors or um, even kind of any superstitious ritual that is right for you and is part of your tradition, it's coming from a place of value. 
It's coming from a place of this is who I want to be. This is what I want to do. Not from a place where OCD is kind of in the back of your head saying, if you don't, you're in big trouble and maybe your family is in big trouble too. So we really try to kind of separate them out and make sure that I'm not doing this from a place of fear or a place of distress. I'm doing it because I want to and OCD is no longer part of the equation. That's really interesting. I'm glad you brought up values because I think no matter what, it's always going back to like what is making me want to do this. So that's a really good point. And so for someone who is maybe experiencing a compulsion or an intrusive thought and they don't have access to a therapy, this is just an example for someone who doesn't have access to therapy. What do you think are a few things they can do to maybe recognize these patterns or to start, you know, working on themselves if right now they don't have that access? That's a good question too. So first of all, I always try to put in a pitch for therapy because it's so important. And like I said, this kind of work is, is so hard to do period. It's even harder to do alone. So calling your insurance company, if you have insurance is a great way of finding in-network providers, you know, asking around, speaking to friends. If you're in college, going to campus, you know, counseling centers, really trying your best to find somebody to support you in the process. It just makes the whole experience lighter. You kind of take the burden off of your shoulders and you share the load with somebody else. Now, I understand that that's not feasible for everybody. So I can kind of give you the approach that I take to therapy and, and maybe that can help somebody understand what the end goal would be. There's also some really great books that I can share with you. Um, as well. So just kind of getting more of your own information in terms of how to how to work through it can be helpful too, both in feeling like you're not alone and in feeling like you have a game plan for what's going to work. So the way that I, generally speaking, help people through their, their OCD, like I mentioned earlier, is with a treatment process called ERP, exposure therapy. And the way that this treatment process works is we identify, okay, what are my thoughts? What are my, what are my behaviors? that OCD is telling me to do, or OCD is telling me to think about. And then we try to boil it down and we try to find what we call the focus of apprehension. What about this feels like it would be the scariest, scariest part. And for some people who have, you know, even for example, harm OCD, right? Like maybe I'm going to hurt somebody, even though I don't want to, or some people have magical thinking kinds of OCD, right? If I don't do this, something bad is going to happen to a loved one. We really try to boil down What is the biggest fear that's happening here that's coming up for me here? And then we create a game plan. It's kind of cool. We create a game plan or what we call a hierarchy in terms of all the things that OCD is telling you you can't do. And we start to learn how to stand up to our OCD, gently, of course, with a lot of love and a lot of courage. And we say, okay, I'm going to try to do it anyway. And I'm not going to engage in the compulsions that you're telling me I have to do because I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to live the way I'm choosing to live. And that goes back to our values like you were speaking about earlier. And then slowly but surely, we start to face the fears, whether it's in our thoughts or in our actual behaviors, and build our way up that hierarchy or build our way up that ladder until we kind of get our our life back. And maybe OCD always stays in the background as a quiet little voice, but it's like a radio that's turned down instead of like the pilot of the plane saying, go here, do that, think about this, behave this way, check on that thing double check the door, talk to your boyfriend about that. Right. And it's just kind of like, it's just like living in the back over there. And, and you get to kind of be the person that runs your life and engages in, in your life and in your daily habits and in your thoughts, even 
in a way that's easeful and value driven in the life that you've chosen. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so important how you basically mentioned that you have to separate yourself from the OCD because like we said, I think it's so easy to say I am my thoughts and I am everything I believe and it must be my values or I must want to hurt people or do these things that I would never actually want to do. And so is that something you see often when it comes to people's confidence and sense of self that they maybe feel detached if they think like, what do I believe if these are the thoughts that are coming up? What do I actually feel and what are my values? I am, I'm kind of like mixing the two. It's a blurred line. Is that is that something you hear often with your clients? Totally. Totally. Unraveling the voice of OCD can be a very destabilizing process. Because people come, I don't know who I am anymore. This is the voice I've heard for so long in my head that I've listened to. That's not me. And sometimes people recognize like, well, I don't want it to be me, but it feels like me. So it can actually be very scary. (laughs) And it can feel like completely like a identity crisis. Even if that's not who I am, then I wouldn't even know what I might find. And that's a scary part of the process too. It takes a lot of courage to get inside of your own head and say, "I, I actually don't want to believe these things anymore, but I don't know what, exactly what I'm going to find in its place. Um, so that, that for sure is part of the process and for sure is very scary, but it's important because we actually don't control the thoughts that get placed in our heads. If we did, we'd all walk around in very different worlds, right? When we think about, I don't know, I have a bit of a, <laughs> my own perspectives on the manifestation movement, but it's, it's not necessarily that I can just think about something and then that means it's my reality. Or it's not just that I can choose the thoughts that pop into my head because that what that means is if a thought pops into my head that I don't like or that confuses me, then maybe I chose that. Maybe there's something wrong with me like we were speaking about earlier. And I always tell people, and this is one of my posts on Instagram, like you have feet, you are not your feet. You have thoughts, you are not your thoughts. There are neural firings happening in your brain and you get to choose how you react to them, but that's pretty much it. That's such a good point. I actually love that example, especially with like manifestation, because imagine like someone's following someone who says like, what you think is what's going to happen. Or it's like, oh, my whole family's going to die now that I thought about that. It can be terrifying. So I think that's such a good point. When it comes to the healing process, is OCD something that is lifelong? Is it curable, I guess you'd say, or is it just accepting that you will live with these thoughts? And that is okay, because I think it can be hard for people who think, okay, well, I'm going to therapy, I'm doing the work, but I'm still dealing with these thoughts. What is your takeaway when it comes to healing with OCD? That's a really great question. And I think for everybody, this is also a little bit different. It depends on your genetics. It depends on your upbringing. It depends on how well you react to stress in other areas of your life. So it's not a one size fits all answer, but the way I see it is kind of like this. You might have a strand of OCD in your, in your life forever, but it might lie very, very, very dormant if you do the work and you know exactly how to respond to it when it starts to creep up for you. And then in the future, if you have a life stressor and OCD kind of kicks up again, you know exactly, okay, time to listen to these thoughts. It is time to do some exposures. It is time to go back to therapy. I need a quick three sessions to get back on my feet. And then it just kind of becomes like a flare up that happens and you work through it and then you can move on. I don't like to tell people that it can be erased forever because I think that that's a very, 
it's a very tall order and it makes accepting, you know, who you are and the struggles that you have a very, very, very big challenge, which is a huge part of the work as well. Um, there's um, an amazing, amazing therapist who really spearheaded so much of the behavioral treatment approach to OCD. His name is Dr. Jonathan Grayson. Have you, he's in LA, actually. Have you heard of him? Uh, no, no, I have not. I'll have to look him up. He's incredible. Yeah. He wrote the book Freedom from OCD. And I highly recommend that for anybody who thinks that they are struggling with with OCD. It's a really easy read. It's kind of heavy because he says it like it is, but it's also very relatable because you're like, oh, wow, I'm not the only one who has thoughts like that. That feels amazing. But what he he actually he run her used to run these retreats for people that were struggling with OCD in their lifetime, either those who have really recovered or those who are still very much in the beginning stages of the early healing process. And they would get together and they would support each other and they would do kind of like really wild things together to just reinforce this idea that I don't live with OCD running my life. And he he told me when we met um, that they would kind of walk through the streets and if they would see a dumpster, everybody would stick their hand into the dumpster just to show I can, I can contaminate myself <laughs> and I can handle it and I'm going to be okay. OCD I love that. Not control my life. Exactly. And when we kind of make it a part of our being, instead of really trying to shove it out of our world, it becomes this wildly empowering thing because every time I have an intrusive thought or every time I have a compulsion and I don't engage in it, I look at myself I'm like, I am the hero of my own life. I control my destiny in terms of how I act and how I think, right? And I can be stung by these triggers all the time and I can still stand up to them and choose the way I want to live. So I think it's less about, you know, trying to get rid of it forever and more about empowering yourself in the strongest way possible so that if there are flare-ups down the line or something does happen that really triggers it, you believe in yourself so much to live in the uncertainty and to face that unknown, but that part doesn't scare you. I love that. And, you know, you mentioned that it is exhausting for someone and it's such an internal battle that you may not see externally in someone who's trying to, you know, talk back to those intrusive thoughts. It can take a lot of energy that others may not see. And so for someone who's listening to this, whether or not they or they have OCD or they know someone who does, or they're thinking maybe this is, this sounds familiar. What would you tell to them if they've never heard from anyone else that their experiences are valid, not their thoughts, but what they're experiencing is real and difficult. What would you say to them? I would tell them, I don't have the, I don't have the exact data right now, but the number of, of adults that have had episodes of OCD in their lifetime is astronomical. It's a really high percentage and people are really not alone. It's a lonely, lonely, lonely disorder because it's not talked about enough. And the hard parts about OCD aren't talked about enough. You know, and and we can talk about like, oh, it's a, you know, doorknob, washing my hands. But we also don't talk about the fact that there are some moms who are afraid to have kids because of their OCD thoughts. And there are some people who are afraid to be in relationships because of their OCD thoughts. And some people that are afraid to go to school or have a career, right? There are some people that I can never be a therapist because what if I blurt out the wrong thing in session? Or what if I totally lose control and, you know, purposely hurt my patient? And these are really scary things that, that don't feel like we can talk about them. But the truth is that they're just an experience like everything else. So I would say to really, really know that you're not alone and that the emotion of shame, it's okay if that shows up for you, but that's not founded in the facts. The world is not, you know, at this stage in our, 
mental health journey holistically, the world is not going to reject you for having OCD, for talking about it. In fact, there are people that really can hold you and applaud you and also kind of walk you through it. I love that. That's very validating. Thank you. And so I know we mentioned the struggle of knowing who you are maybe, or like knowing your authentic self, if you're experiencing this. I mean, this whole show is about living authentically and that looks different for everyone. And it, you know, it's not so black and white. So I like to ask every guest this because it's, everyone has such a different answer. So for you, how would you define living your most authentic life? And what would you tell to someone who is trying to get on that path? Beautiful question. I would say, personally speaking, living my most authentic life means engaging in and caring more about what I think of myself above all else and, and not what other people think of me, you know, and really, really allowing myself to live in line with the values that I have, as opposed to the values that society tells you to have, or even, you know, your friendship group tells you to have and being so in touch with that relationship with self that you can go ahead and live life that way, knowing that you are your own North star. And in terms of how that I think relates to OCD as well is we're authentic when we allow ourselves to kind of live in that, in that uncertainty zone, when we allow ourselves to kind of go into the maybe land and then do whatever it is that we want to do. So for somebody, maybe their, their anxiety is saying, you know, don't, don't speak up or, or don't post that thing on Instagram even, right. Or don't say how you really feel on this incredible podcast that, that you run, right. It could look very different for everybody. But I think that living the most authentic life means saying, okay, all those voices can exist, even if it's a voice of OCD existing, and still I get to choose who I want to be and how I want to live. That's so beautifully said. I love that. And I think that connects to the last question, which is on self-compassion. And so for someone maybe who has started to recognize these patterns or be aware of whatever they're going through, whether it's OCD or just certain triggers or behaviors they're working on, for example and say one day they're aware of it, they feel like, okay, I was able to talk back to my intrusive thoughts. That was great. And it didn't affect me that much. And then the next day they react in a way they're not proud of, for example. What, how important do you believe self-compassion is? I mean, on a day-to-day basis when it comes to growth and self-awareness and realizing that not every day is going to be perfect. Even if you are aware of these patterns, we're all going to, you know, healing's not linear, basically. What are your thoughts on self-compassion? If you don't have it, you are going to be facing an uphill battle for the rest of your life. I think very firmly that we're all our own biggest advocates or we're all our own biggest adversaries. And you're either lifting yourself up and walking yourself through, no matter how many times you fall down, or you become part of the problem. And having the gift of self-compassion and knowing that it's a muscle that you build, it's not just something you say, well, I wasn't born with that one, right? <laughs> I think ends up propelling the, the healing journey so much more, more quickly, I think, than any other trait. And I love how you said it. it. It's not a linear process. It's back and forth and back and forth and a little bit farther and then a huge backslide and all of that is okay. And the more you kind of let yourself be on your own team and, and encourage yourself to just get back up and recognize that it's part of the process, the more you're going to you're going to proceed and the more you're going to thrive and the more you're going to grow. 
Well, thank you so much. I think that was so beautifully said and a perfect way to end this episode. And before we leave, I definitely want to ask you if there's anything coming up next for you and your work and the amazing page you have and where listeners can give you a follow. Ah, I love it. Okay. I'm on Instagram so they can follow me at therapist in NYC. Um, and what's coming up for me next? Well, I actually recently just started my own private practice a couple months ago. So that's been congrats. Thank you. It's super, super fabulous. I've been loving it. I have two amazing associates working for me and we are practicing in New York, New Jersey, and Florida, and hopefully growing soon, but stay tuned. Um, and that's, that's been what I've been up to and it's been really, really fabulous. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. I feel like starting your own private practice is huge. So congrats. It's very cool. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure a lot of people will take something away from this episode. So thank you, Aliza. I love this, Tara. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that episode and were able to take something away, whether or not you resonate with the topics discussed. I hope you were able to feel validated in some way or learn something new or learn a new way to support a loved one or just learn something new about a topic that maybe you never explored or really knew about before. So I want to thank Aliza again for being here. You can find her on Instagram at therapist underscore in underscore NYC. And you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Trust and Thrive. Please feel free to reach out. Let me know what topics you want to hear on the show, what resonated with you. I appreciate any feedback. You can also do so by leaving a rating and review on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts. And I just want to give a last thank you for being here. I know I say thank you all the time. You're probably thinking she just says thank you like at the end of every episode. But I'm just really thankful to be here to have these conversations they're just so rejuvenating, honestly. After leaving my conversation with Eliza, I felt personally so validated. I was so honored to connect with her and to have this conversation. And I'm just so thankful to be here after all these years. And so I'm sending you all love. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. I hope you take care of yourself and I will catch you all next Thrive Thursday.